0: Amen. Thanks, Dave. GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And it is a great privilege and honor to open up God's word uh, for you and with us uh, today. Uh, so I'd encourage you to turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, as we continue here in our series. Mark chapter 12, our text today, just a few verses, verses 13 through 17. Don't read into that, that this is going to be a short sermon. This is not. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. The words will be up on the screen behind me. If you're able to, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. and they brought one. And He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to Him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at Him. This is God's Word for us this morning. You may be seated and join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, give us grace. Lord, we… We are in need. We need you every minute of every hour of every day. And I need your help in this hour and in this day and in this very minute. So I pray that you would give each one of us grace, that we would hear your word, that we would receive it with joy, that some here would be saved, that today would be their day of salvation and that everyone here, the saints, would be built up in faith, strengthened and encouraged, that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that He would be exalted and worshipped as our preeminent King, our Redeemer, and our Savior. Be pleased to do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to get yourself in trouble, very quickly at your next dinner party, or perhaps work barbecue, or maybe it is your Mother's Day celebration here next week, start talking about either politics or religion or both. That probably ought to do it. Most of us have some very strong opinions about both of those subjects, politics And religion, church and state, God and government. In my mind, that is a very large, spicy meatball. And Jesus, in our text, talks about both of them. No big deal. Except it is a big deal. It was a big deal then, it's certainly a big deal now. I don't have to remind you folks, even in the last couple years, divisions between the right and the left, between Republicans and Democrats, between conservatives and progressives, that has split families. It has split churches, and it's not that it's not that churches physically split, but it's just that members within those churches look at each other now with greater suspicion, and maybe even greater disdain. Maybe they're a lot more quick to criticize one another if they find out that you don't share my position on that political issue, or you don't even share the same political party. And so you might literally sit across the aisle from that same person Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and in your heart you want nothing to do with them. Now, Some of you know how this is within your family or perhaps place of employment or even social network that you run in. Now, if you think politics and religion are supercharged subjects in our day, in the first century it was even more so, and so as Mark writes here in his gospel, Rome is in charge, and depending on who you ask, they're not doing such a great job. Many of the Roman emperors in the first century are legendary all these centuries later, and they're legendary for all the wrong reasons. You've probably heard of Nero, the Roman emperor who set fire to Rome, AD 70, then he blamed it on the Christians, and because of that, a widespread persecution broke out against this fledgling church, against God's people everywhere. Under his brutal rule and reign, the Apostle Peter as well as the Apostle Paul were both martyred. If we go back just a few years from Nero, well, we read about the emperor Claudius. One historian wrote of Claudius, and I'm quoting now, he was a bumbling man who became emperor against all odds. He was a bumbling man who became the most powerful person on earth. Now I know what some of you are thinking, and I just want you to recognize that I know what some of you are thinking. Claudius, by all accounts, was just flat out crazy. Now, speaking of crazy, the Roman Emperor Caligula promoted himself as God, and that's not actually the crazy part. The crazy part Is that this guy actually granted the consulship to his favorite horse. So, he looked around the room and said, my horse is the most qualified to take over. And what of Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar that was in power during the reign of Jesus' life and ministry, this same Caesar that Jesus is referring to here, In Mark chapter 12, it was written of him, and I'm quoting again, that he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace when fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged his own inclinations. His inhumane treatment of fellow human beings, his sexual perversions and appetites, they're they're so disgusting that I actually wish I had not read any of them this last week. My point and our point by way of context here is to say that the government that existed, as Mark is recording this, as Jesus is speaking this, is far from Christian, nowhere near godly. Which I think makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus would say in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Give to evil, wicked, pagan Caesar, that is, the government, the things that are rightfully his, and yes, give to God what is his. So, according to Jesus, brothers and sisters, we have responsibilities to both. And let me at the outset here just offer a word of caution and perhaps a way forward. You're not going to find a directive in this text here that will definitively say, here's who you should vote for in November. Or here's the company that you should boycott this July. Just not going to find it here. Jesus also doesn't tell us what petitions are worthy to support, what political causes we should rally around, and what political causes we shouldn't really be interested in at all. And he certainly doesn't tell us, explicitly, at least in this text, that as long as you worship him as king, you don't have to care about anybody else on earth. You don't have to care about any other government or earthly government, just hunker down and wait until the king, the true king, returns. He doesn't say that either. Now, what does he say to us? Well, actually, what he gives us, and we shouldn't be surprised at this as we have seen Jesus uh, all the way through here, the gospel of Mark. What Jesus gives us is sane wisdom that we need, never failing wisdom. His voice is, in fact, the one sane voice that we actually need to pay attention to Amidst a cacophony, as we know, of all kinds of voices vying for our attention. So we want to learn this morning what Jesus, yes, our true king, really has to say about what we owe to Caesar, that is the government, and yes, what we owe to God. That's where we're going this morning. Now, the immediate context, again, here could not be more intense or supercharged with emotion. Jesus is still in the temple. He's there for a few chapters here, and he's still in a confrontation between some very, very powerful religious people. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling elites. We've learned about them in the last couple weeks. Now we don't know exactly how much time specifically has passed from his confrontation last week. Remember, Jesus shared the parable of the wicked tenants, He basically said to these ruling elites, I am talking about you. I am speaking to you. You guys are the wicked tenants here, and you're about to kill the beloved Son of God. Well, these guys in the Sanhedrin, they heard that, they got it, but they do not repent. They heard that, they got it, and what do they do? They redouble their efforts here to get rid of Jesus. This time, they bring in the reinforcements. Let me read verses 13 and 14. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now you'll notice the two groups of opposition, direct opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees, they're the social conservatives. They're very proud of their purity. They're very proud of their separation from the world. They're especially very proud of separating themselves from anybody who doesn't think exactly like they do. So these guys are the ultra nationalists. These are the red blooded uh, patriots of Israel who hated Roman occupation and longed for the day when they could return to the self rule that they enjoyed under uh, the king of David. The Pharisees often were referred to as the bruised people. Isn't that interesting? Bruised people because they paid so much attention to their legalistic practices that they kept bumping into things, bruising. And in this encounter, they're they're bumping into Jesus. Now, the Herodians, we don't really know too much about them. Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about them. But from what we do know, they were not very religious at all. These guys were basically gangsters, men of the world. They were integrated into the Roman government because they really enjoyed the kickbacks that they received from Rome. And so even the word Herodian, you think of Herod, where have we heard of him before? Yes, it's that same Herod that had John the Baptist killed at the bequest of his second wife. So these guys are slime balls. They are shady characters with a penchant for violence. Now, what I think is interesting, interesting isn't actually the word, I don't know what the word is. But but what is interesting is that the Pharisees and the Herodians absolutely hated each other. They would not be caught dead in a conversation with each other. They would completely remove themselves if they even saw a, a, someone from another party. They wouldn't see, be seen dead talking to one another. But yet what unites them on this day in the temple is what? Their shared deep hatred for Jesus. I suppose it might be like the the Sunni and the Shiite Muslims who have centuries of conflict, who, who really do hate each other and it's been shown in their minds, suddenly they get together out of their shared hatred for another group or another party. And in our own country here, I, I suppose it, this analogy maybe isn't exactly right, but all the way, but it could be like members of the, of the Tea Party who then join hands across the aisle with the squad the four liberal, progressive, Democratic Congress ladies. And they say, and it's kind of odd, like in that meeting, like, what? But but they're united together in their shared hatred for some other political leader who is maybe rising to the top. I guess it's true, at times, politics really does make for some very strange bedfellows. But I actually think more accurately, hatred. Hatred makes for some even stranger bedfellows. And so, we read here of their bipartisan plan to trap Jesus, and it's actually a very simple plan. Let's butter him up. Let's try flattery. Maybe he'll slip. Maybe he'll say something that he'll regret and he'll totally discredit himself. Jesus, you're a straight shooter. You're fair and balanced. You teach the ways of God. Now, of course, they don't mean that. I mean, false praise, flattery, that's just the next move for these guys to try and get rid of Jesus. Ultimately, they want to kill Him. They want to be done with Him. So, really, what we have here is just, it's really nothing more than a smear campaign, first century style. If in your face, conflict and opposition, if, if that can't get Jesus because He always seems to know what we're about to say, He always has an answer for that, well, let's just try flattery which actually usually works on us, at least for a time, doesn't it? Why won't it work on Jesus? Well, because He's not like us. Jesus knows it's a trap. He knows that even though they're saying true things about Him, their wicked hearts are bent on absolute destruction of Him, destroying Him. One commentator writes this, their purpose is diabolical, yet their compliments are profound. They may deny Jesus is their king, but even as they attack him, they must concede that he behaves nobly. Isn't that interesting? Even when they're trying to set a trap, and they are, they're still actually speaking what is true about Jesus. They actually make four true statements about Jesus. You are true, number one. You're a man of integrity, Jesus. We get that. You don't care about the opinions of others. There's no fence sitting with him. There's no Let me check which way the wind is blowing, and then I'll go in that direction. You don't show any favoritism, Jesus. You don't compromise your messaging to to win a, a crowd or to have influence with people. And yes, you actually teach God's ways. Can you imagine just one election cycle and just one politician for whom that would be true? I mean, can you say that about any politicians that you're aware of? Would anybody say that about you? Would anybody say that about me? I mean, we don't always tell the truth. We don't always faithfully live what we actually say we believe. Yes, sometimes we we really are far too concerned about the opinions of others and swayed by others. And certainly we, we face that tug of being so swayed by outward appearances, so swayed by the people or the or right in front of us that we can actually betray our convictions because we fear that we may not fit in, that we may not belong. And these fears are real. And sometimes those fears can actually dominate our lives. I recently read that there are four great adult fears. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of punishment, and fear of shame. I mean, why stop at four? My daughter drove me to church this morning. I mean, you get to a certain age and you do fear death those are not related. The fear of being alone, the fear of living without certain things or living without certain people. I mean, our fears are many and varied. But that's, brothers and sisters, what makes Jesus so compelling here, why we want to actually worship Him here. Because Jesus is not driven by fear. Never. Jesus is driven by one thing, the glory of God and obedience to the plan of His heavenly Father, even if it meant his own crucifixion, and it did. He wasn't driven by the prevailing opinions of the day, by the cultural, religious opinions of the day. He's, he's not like the Caesars who manipulated and murdered their way to the top. He's not like that. He's not like the Pharisees or the Herodians who only cared about somehow getting into power and maintaining power at all costs. We see a picture of Jesus here and. That's what makes us want to bow down and to worship Him and to give our lives for Him and to serve Him because we know His character, and we know it's never going to change. We know we can trust what He says. We know we can base our lives on exactly what He says, whatever He says. We know that it's going to be true in every season of our lives, regardless of what changes, and a lot does change. Governments change. Leaders change. It's a revolving door. God never changes. Jesus never changes. Now, I know this passage here is not about, directly at least, about our big four adult fears. But let me just suggest to you four big words to meditate on as you and I face our adult fears, whatever they may be this week. Four words. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. That precious truth, that promise reorients us. It anchors us. It it points us in the right direction as we, yeah, in the midst of some very great fears. Church, there is no place more secure on this earth than being found in Christ. Having faith in Christ, united to Him uh, by faith in Christ. What great assurance we Christians actually do have. What profound security we enjoy by God's grace because we are in Christ. You are in Christ. Whatever happened this last week hasn't changed that. And whatever will happen this week won't change that either either. As a believer, you are in Christ. Four words to live by as you face your fears. Now to the question of the day, verse 14, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Short question, but not a simple question. The tax that the Sanhedrin here are bringing up, that was not a tax to fund schools. That was not a tax to pay for roads. That was not a tax for public safety, kind of for the general good the tax in question was a poll tax. It came about in 6 AD. It was a direct payment to Caesar. It was a form of tribute paid by all the subjects to Caesar. And because of that, it was hated by the Jews. And it wasn't really a large tax. That didn't really matter. The Jews were, in essence, paying for the right to be oppressed, paying for the right to be occupied. 20 years earlier, there was a guy named Judas of Galilee. He led a revolt against the Romans because he refused to pay this tax. And what do you think happened? Rome squashed him and the revolt. Everybody involved in that were just massacred. So this question of taxation, this question posed to Jesus, was loaded with historical and national and political trouble. I mean, this is is deep stuff here. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, when they asked Jesus this question, well, they think, Man, we got him right where we want him. Finally. Those other guys, who opposed, they didn't know what they were doing. We're much smarter. We, we got an in with him. We got Jesus right where we need him to be. Because if Jesus says, yeah, you need to pay the tax to Caesar. You have to. He becomes a sympathizer to the evil Roman emperor. The, the Pharisees will be ticked. The people will revolt. He's going to lose a whole bunch of influence with the Jews. But if Jesus says, uh, no, you don't have to pay your taxes to Caesar, no big deal. He's a traitor to Rome. The Herodians will tell Rome they will arrest Jesus. They will charge him with insurrection on the spot. So this is definitely a heads I win, tails you lose wager. There's no way Jesus can get out of this. He can't wiggle or finagle his way out of this. I mean, at this point, I think... I. Can't you just see, like, this would be the weirdest bunch of high fives between the Herodians and the Pharisees. Like, I hate you. I don't know why I'm giving you a high five. Oh, yeah, because we hate this guy even more. High drama. There is no way out. Except there is. Because the one thing we know with Jesus, the one thing He has shown us, the one thing we know about Jesus is that with Jesus... There's always a way out. With Jesus, there's always a way forward. With Jesus, there's always, always a way through. Whatever the circumstance, whatever's troubling you this morning, whatever looks so complicated that you don't have any hair left because you've pulled it all out, there's always, always, always hope with Jesus. So, we ought not be surprised at what Jesus actually says, verses 15 through 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, He said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to Him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things of the God, and they marveled at him. You know why they marveled at him? Because what he just said was absolutely revolutionary. Nobody had said anything like this ever before. And his answer is incredibly brilliant. I mean, their question, Jesus, do we need to pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, show me the money. Show me the money. Give me a coin presumably because he didn't have a coin, but Jesus never carried money as far as we know. The coin was part of the Roman system. Jews accepted this coin when they did business. So, on one side of this Roman coin was the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You flip the coin over, on the other side it read, high priest. Now, both of those statements were incredibly offensive to the Jews. They broke Commandment number one and commandment number two. And so, Jesus has this coin, and He looks at it, flips it around, and notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't look down and say, yeah, you don't have to pay this tax. Yeah, no big deal. No, you're not obligated to pay this tax. Or He looks at it and says, who does Caesar think He is anyways? Jesus says, verse 17, render, some translations use the word give, But basically, it literally means to repay, repay. So Jesus says very clearly that we have responsibilities to our civil government and we have responsibilities to our God. We are to repay what we owe to government and repay what we owe to God. I would put it very simply like this. Respect Caesar, worship God respect Caesar worship God now let me make 3 points of application from that phrase respect Caesar worship God Ho- hopefully it'll provide at least a, a bit of a framework as we seek to navigate some very complex and confusing times and again the, the these 3 points that i'm about to make by way of application are not going to solve every question that we have in fact you might leave here with so even more questions and that is okay, but I do hope that they will give at least a basic framework for us in terms of how we are to engage, how we are to actually live right now. Here's the first. Be good citizens even if you think the government is bad. Be good citizens even if you think the government is corrupt in what probably has to be the most obvious application point to any sermon that I will ever, ever preach, if you owe taxes to the government, you should pay your taxes to the government. Tax fraud, tax evasion, that does not advance the cause of the gospel here in Spokane. We don't want to be known as those people who don't pay their taxes. That's not helpful for the sake of the gospel. Hands up if you drove a car to church this morning. Most of us did. Did you drive your car on a road that you actually paved? No. Did you enjoy passing through a green light while those who were coming in opposite directions, they actually stopped at a red light so that you could get to church safely? That's a good thing. I think you'd agree. Do we all enjoy living under the web of protection afforded by police officers and firefighters? Again, yes, of course, we all do. Okay, so, so pay your taxes, render to Caesar, pay what you owe to the government. That is, in fact, part of our duty as faithful citizens of this country to respect the role and rule of government. We give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, as I've stated, Rome was not a good government, not by any stretch, at every level. So, no matter how much you are frustrated or dislike whatever level, or all levels of government in this country. I can assure you, Rome was far worse. And yet Jesus says, pay your taxes. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, be good citizens only if you agree with the government. Be good citizens only if you voted for them. Be good citizens if this is your party, no, be good citizens, render to Caesar, pay your taxes. Why? Because every human government has been instituted by God Himself. That's the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 13. It's, I'd encourage you to read through that later. Uh, you will be doing a little bit of work on that in your, in your home groups this week. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, we read this, "'Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution,' whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, that's Peter who just saw his king, King Jesus, beaten by Roman soldiers, a Roman spear uh, piercing his side, crucified at the hands of some very godless men. And yet, Peter says, honor the emperor. Honor the person who holds the highest office in the land. In Peter's day, it was the emperor. In our day, well, in this country, it begins with the president and then works its way down through every level of government. Honor the president. Now, I've had conversations with some Christians that, that talk as if showing honor to the president, the emperor it's just optional. Kind of take it or leave it. If you feel like it, that's a good thing to do. God will bless. But if you don't, you don't have to. I've had some conversations too that with, with some folks that, that think showing honor to the to the president is actually sinning against God somehow. It is not. Jesus is the true King of kings, but Jesus didn't obliterate all earthly governments or earthly kings. So, what does it look like, then, to actually honor the emperor? To honor the president, President Biden. Now, there's a whole lot of things, I think, with that. But at its most basic level, honor means showing respect. Showing respect, which means, then, that if you're going to show respect or honor, that really can't stay hidden. That can't stay private. Just unexpressed, in my heart I'm honoring Him, and then your actions betray that. No, honor manifests itself in all kinds of public actions in small ways. Our body language, uh, the way we talk, certainly certainly, our actions. Uh, for example, uh, if your young daughter, you, you maybe ask her to do something, and she rolls her eyes at you and shrugs her shoulders and is like, <gasps> you know, she's dishonoring you, isn't she? Happens all the time. But when she's eager to help unload and to help and be of service and, you know, I'd I'd love to uh, unload the groceries from the back of the van, well, she's showing honor. Well, if our children see us every time President Biden's name is mentioned and we're like, don't talk to me. I mean, if we're rude in some way to the president or to those in authority over us, are we really surprised if our children disrespect us? I mean, if we fail to honor the president and show respect, can we blame our children for not really wanting to honor us and disrespect us? They're just seeing, we're setting an example for them, aren't we? Now, brothers and sisters, honor doesn't mean blind loyalty. It certainly doesn't mean that we like every decision that's made. It doesn't mean that we agree with every policy either. I mean, what a great privilege we have to live in this country. And I say that as a foreigner. What a great privilege that we live in a place where dissent is part of the fabric, where we can make our voices heard, where where democracy actually, like, it's real. Is it perfect? No. But it's, I mean, it's a lot different than saying, well, in you know, the former Soviet Union, they had democracy. No, they didn't. We actually do. So, we ought to. We should be involved. We should make our voice heard. Where There's all kinds of ways, as the Lord permits and allows, that we need to be involved. My point is simply this. Whatever it is that we do or don't do, all the while we are to honor Caesar as an act of worship to God. I really wonder, and I thought and actually prayed about this week, really first for my own heart. We tend to be so cynical in this country now, I wonder if it's even possible to to show honor to anybody. I mean, parents sometimes have a hard time showing honor and respect to teachers or to coaches. Churches sometimes fail to honor widows. Husbands fail to honor their wives. I mean, we're all cynics. So, perhaps a good place to start is with your heart. Start by, by being a good citizen in cultivating an attitude of honor and respect that is actually visibly seen that would give evidence that the Lord is actually transforming your heart, that He is working on you. I think it would be a, a really great testimony for a local church like ours to say, yeah, those people, they, they, they actually they give grace to those who disagree with them. They're not out there mudslinging. They're not on the internet trolling, just looking for arguments. Yeah, they disagree. They've made that clear and plain, but yet they do it in such a way that you don't hear about when I turn on the evening news. They're different. Respect Caesar, worship God. We are to be good, faithful citizens, even if the government is bad. Second, allegiance to God and love for country are not inherently incompatible. Allegiance to God... And love for country are not inherently incompatible. Now, can they easily be confused? Yes. Caesar's not God. The state is not God. God is God. But, brothers and sisters, it's not a sin if you, if you choke up when the national anthem is played. You're not automatically loving God less when you get choked up at the Fourth of July parade. Always visiting a friend... A couple of years ago, he lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, he, he took me to his favorite barbecue restaurant. It's a place called Mission Barbecue. I think they have them all over the southeast. And, so, and every day at noon, in every restaurant, the Star Spangled Banner is played. Now, he forgot to tell me that, and so I am, I am nose deep into some very tasty ribs, when all of a sudden I hear the Star-Spangled Banner and everybody stands up and many took their hats off and some even began to sing. And I'm like putting my rib down. And look, I'm not, I'm, as you know, I'm not American. But it was an incredibly moving scene, it really was. And God is not threatened by that. It's not a sin to be patriotic. It's not a sin to love your country and to love the blessings of living in this country. So allegiance to God and love for country are not inherently incompatible. Now, here's what I would say. I think more and more, church, we need to see ourselves much more like the Israelites living in Babylon than the Israelites living in the Promised Land. That's our way forward. We make our way in this world, in this country, as foreigners, all of us, as exiles. This is not our home. We're not trying to make it out to be. I mean, the New Testament speaks of us over and over again as what? Strangers, aliens. It even uses the word foreigners, 1 Peter 2.11. And so while we give thanks for the blessings of living in this country, while we praise God for that, we also then work to seek the good of the city. We work to alleviate suffering as we can. We, We diligently work for peace in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our schools, and we give God... Thanks for all of these opportunities, and thanks for the blessings that are ours because we live in this country. None of us deserve to live in a country like this. That is God's grace and kindness to us. And so, as we recognize that, we are actually worshiping Him. Allegiance to God, love for country, this country, they're not inherently incompatible. Here's the third principle. As disciples of the true King, we owe ultimate allegiance to God we owe ultimate allegiance to God. Christianity began as a very small, persecuted, minority religion. And if you really do think about it, much of the New Testament tells us how to live godly lives, how to live sane lives, how to live God-pleasing lives while we are under the thumb of a bully. Now, Our brothers and sisters around the world, they've understood this for centuries. It is possible to have responsibilities to a lower authority, that is government, precisely because those responsibilities have been instituted by a higher authority, God Himself. That's effectively what Jesus is saying in this text. So, the power of the state is legitimate. It's limited. Our allegiance to God is absolute. So, what happens if God and government clash, come in conflict. Who do we obey? God. There are all kinds of examples in Scripture where this happens. I think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, of course, the Jewish midwives, in saving uh, the Hebrew babies, Acts 4.19 explicitly says that. So, if Caesar, that is the government, let's say this week, comes up with a new law that says anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be fined, we'll be thrown into jail, what should we do? Should we close up church? No, we continue to believe in Jesus Christ, we preach and teach the gospel, we call people to repent and believe, and we face the consequences, and we endure. Now if the government, let's say the state of Washington this week comes out with a new law that says, okay, uh, formally the, the traffic, the speed limit on the freeway is 65, we're gonna bump that down to 45 miles an hour, and you say, I don't like that law, I have a need for speed, and you just totally disregard that, and you just drive 65, and you amass thousands of dollars in fines, and then you come to the elders asking for a benevolent fund request, you know what we're going to tell you? No. But we're also going to tell you to slow down, obey the law, repent, And start thinking clearly about your life. Giving God his due is always more important than giving Caesar his due, but we have responsibilities to both. So, what belongs to Caesar? Honor, respect, taxes. What belongs to God? You. You belong to God. Caesar gets a few coins, God has a right to you. So when one day you stand before the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose image and likeness is on you? It's not Caesar's, it's God's. You are made in God's image. You owe your life to God, your existence to God. His image, His likeness is on you. And yes, the the tragic human story from Genesis chapter 3 is that that image of God placed on us, in us, has been distorted. It's been marred by our sins. Sin tarnishes the very image of God. And try as we might, and we do, we cannot somehow take away that stain. We can't polish ourselves up enough to somehow get rid of that stain and that tarnish. We actually need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. And in the gospel, Christ has come to reclaim what is rightfully His, to restore the image of God and renew and redeem sinners. That's the good news of the gospel, and He's done that through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus has given up everything on the cross, so why would we still hold back something from Him? You belong to Him, so give God your whole self. What is it that you might be still holding back from Him today? Because just think about this. If it is a sin to withhold taxes from the IRS, well, how much greater a sin is it to withhold anything from the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very one whose image is stamped on you? You know who cares about you more than the IRS? God. God. Do you know who loves you more than Caesar? Jesus. What can Caesar say to a soul stabbed with sin and in need of forgiveness? What can government, even the wisest of human governments, what can they do for men and women, boys and girls, in need of redemption? Caesar's image is not primary. God's is. And as a Christian, you belong to Him, and so our ultimate allegiance is to Him and to worship Him. And so, where have you been putting off that? And it may be that you've been surrounding yourself with all kinds of political podcasts and blogs, and it's easy to make politics, it's easy to make our political views an idol, when in fact the real thing that we need to do is fall on our knees and surrender, and not keep back anything from the Lord. So, come to Christ. Surrender the fight. Yes, give Caesar his coins, but give God yourself. Let's pray.